Thank you, worship team, for those worship songs. We do worship an awesome God, do we not? Till every soul is one. That is our mission. That's why we're here. I could stop there, right? (laughs) But I'm not. (laughs) Go ahead and turn to either turn, swipe, click, whatever you need to do to get to Malachi chapter 4. We're going to wrap up our journey through Malachi this evening. And as we've been walking through with the Israelites, we have seen that God has brought them back home, right? But yet they are blinded to his blessings. God has set them apart to be a special people, yet they're sympathizing with the world around them. God wants them to repent and be reconciled with him, but yet we're seeing that what? They're rebelling against him. And that's where we find them right now. The title of this message is God's Metaphorical Mic Drop. That'll make sense as we get towards the end, as God is wrapping up things with the people of Israel, and I dare say with us as well. The big idea tonight is God's coming judgment motivate spiritual passion and gospel proclamation. God's coming judgment motivates spiritual passion and gospel proclamation. Now, I say the word passion there, right? Spiritual passion. We've been looking at these Israelites, and they've been doing the opposite. They have spiritual apathy, and God's been calling them out for that. Um, many of you know I, I am a biomedical engineer at AM, and when I'm training folks in the laboratory, uh, mixing chemicals, I don't want them to be apathetic towards the training. They can blow me up, <laughs> and I don't want that. I also work in a biosafety level two and three, looking, working with different organisms. Um, and if they're apathetic toward their training, They can not only affect themselves or me, they can actually infect the entire wing of the building. So I don't want them to be apathetic, right? Because I have them a a mission that they need to accomplish. Same thing with us. God does not want us to be apathetic. He does not want Israel here to be apathetic. And so he has sent Ezra. He has sent Nehemiah. And they're still not listening, right? They're still not following him. And so he's sending Malachi. Remember, his name means messenger. And he has a specific message for them. And he's been going over several disputes with them, right? So if you go to that next slide, please. There are six disputes the people of Israel have with God. And that first one, God is saying, you know, I love you. And they say in a whiny voice, well, how have you loved us? Now, parents, if our kids talk to us like that, how would we react? All right? Like you are to respect your parents or else meet the rod of discipline, right? But do we see God doing that yet? No. He actually entertains their question and answers them. He says, I chose you. That's how much I've loved. I've chose you to be my covenant people. And then he says, You despise me and defile my temple. And again, the people say, Well, how have we done that? And he says, you've brought these blemished sacrifices, right, to the temple. Remember us talking about that, right? And he said, that's disrespecting 
not the temple, but my holiness. Third time, he says, you have turned against me and your wives. And again, people say, how have we done that? And he says, through idolatry and divorce. Again, they were syncretizing with the culture around them. And God said, that is not the plan I have for you. You are to be a set-aside, set-apart people. In dispute number four, God doesn't even get to say a word. The people start whining. You've neglected us. Where is the God of justice? And that's kind of ironic, right? Because that God of justice could have just gone, and they're gone, right? (laughs) It shows how arrogant they have become. And God assures them, says, I will send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and I will bring justice. And we're going to be talking about that tonight. Dispute number five, God is pleading with them, turn back to me. And they say, they've forgotten how. They said, how are we supposed to do that? He says, stop being selfish, stop being self-centered, and obey me. And then finally, God again doesn't get to speak. They start whining again. It's pointless to serve you. Oh, how dangerous a statement that can be, right? Telling God it's pointless to serve him. To the holy God. They say wicked people succeed and you do nothing. And as Bill talked about last week, God gives them a short story. He says, I've made a remnant of people, right? There will be justice, do not give up. Serve me. And I hope you see that the audacity and the spiritual depth of the people, the created disputing with the creator. They had no idea how dangerous ground they were in, right? How disrespectful they were being. That's how far in the depths of spiritual apathy they were. It's a good thing we're not like them, right? Yes, this message is for us as well, right? How many of you have had the spiritual blahs? Don't feel like praying or being driven by the Spirit. May not be filling up, get up and go to church, right? We have those spiritual blahs, starting to get some of the apathy. Maybe distracted by the world, keeps us from hearing the heart and mind of God, right? I'd rather watch something so on TV rather than spend time in God's Word. Or maybe I hit the snooze button five times instead of getting up early and reading God's devotion, Right? Or may we even lose the capacity to be stirred. Spiritual drift happens gradually, right? It doesn't happen all at once. Few people wake up one day and suddenly say, I just stopped following God. Rather, the busyness of life, even in the midst of our spiritual practices, our hearts can turn cold and cause us to wonder from God. And that's what has happened to the people of Israel. That's what could be happening with us, right? If we're not careful. So yes, God is speaking to Israel here about their spiritual apathy, but it's a warning for us as well to not be this way. And so we close in Matthew 4 with six verses. You guys are probably saying, yes, six verses. Charles won't preach for two hours. Well, maybe I will. No, no, I will not. (laughs) Okay, let's read God's word. Starting in verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that will leave them 
neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him on Horeb, same thing as Mount Sinai, for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So let's dive in and see what this means for us today. Let's look at the first three verses. They're actually a little cohort together. And this is talking about the fires of judgment. As I said at the beginning of our time together this evening, we're usually talking about God's love and mercy and compassion. Tonight we're talking about his judgment, which will be coming, right? God is a jealous God. He does, will mete out his wrath to those who do not follow him. And he has to because he is holy. And he cannot tolerate un- unholiness. There's lots of fire imagery in the Bible. And uh, we'll go ahead and put that slide up. And there's three aspects that we see in the Bible. The first is just normal earthly fire, right? Whenever you make fire, somebody's doing a campfire or um, some other aspect, right? It's just no- normal earthly fire. Then there's two other aspects that really stem from God's holiness. One is his visible presence. So whenever God shows up, a lot of times there's fire, right? Pillar of fire leading Israel out of Egypt. The tree of fire, right? And before Moses. The wall of fire around Jerusalem was Zechariah. Ezekiel's vision, right? Fire of God. Holy Spirit, we saw in Matthew and in Acts, right? Flames of the Holy Spirit. God comes down and accepts sacrifices. How? His visible presence, his fire consumes the sacrifices. So his visible presence. But it's the third aspect that we're in this passage tonight, God's judgment. So fire is representing his judgment, the wrath of God. Revelations 1.12, when um, John is looking and beholding Jesus, right? Remember what his eyes were like? His eyes like a flame of fire. Why? Because Jesus at that point is judge, right? He's penetrating judgment. His eyes are searching for those who believe and do not believe. And there's two aspects of the fire of judgment. It can be purifying for the believer and consuming for the unbeliever. Purifying for the unbeliever, purifying for the believer and consuming for the unbeliever. So the first couple of verses here, you see God's talking about consuming fire. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers, all those who do not follow God, will be stubble. And they will be set ablaze, so that they will leave them neither root nor branch. They will be completely consumed by his judgment. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall at the hands of a living God. Deuteronomy 4.24, our God is a consuming fire. 
Isaiah 30 describes him as a, um, a devouring fire in his judgment. I would dare say Sodom and Gomorrah would agree. God's judgment of fire poured down on them. The soldiers who went up against Elijah twice, they were consumed by fire from God, his judgment. Revelation 20, we go before what? The white throne of judgment, all aflame. And then in Revelation later on, we see something called the lake of fire. God's ultimate judgment for Satan, for the third of the angels that followed him, and for all unbelievers. What we normally call as hell. Bring up my last slide, please. So earlier this morning, I sent you a a document on Realm. It went to uh, your email as well that you can look at later this week, describing the, the, the totality of this picture. We don't have time to go over it tonight. But I wanted you to see that we're living in that middle part now, right? Christ has been crucified and resurrected, but we haven't reached the judgment yet. And so if I'm a believer and I die, I go where? I go to heaven or paradise. If I'm an unbeliever, where do I go? I go to Sheol or Hades. I'm in a holding pattern until judgment. And then at judgment, God is going to separate the sheep and the goats, right? We go to the new heaven and new earth, be with God eternally, and unbelievers go where? To the lake of fire, to what we normally call hell, to be eternally separated from God, to be eternally punished. And it's a real place. God is set aside. And God tells them here that it's going to happen to the point there will be no root or branch left. There will be no remnant of the wicked left to continue. God will totally consume them. But, verse 2, we love, we love those conjunctions when God says, but God, right? But for you who fear my name, believers, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Now, God is oftentimes um, depicted as a sun or a star. I think in Revelation, Jesus called the morning star, right? Psalm 118, God is depicted as the sun. Now, Isaiah 60 depicts him as the sun as well. And what you see here is this S-U-N of righteousness. It's talking about Jesus. And the, the healing on its wings, the rays of the sun, right? Jesus is going to be healing. He's going to be purification for the believers, right? We will not be consumed because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We will be purified. Okay? Think of Isaiah 6, right? When Isaiah is before God, he just sees the train of his robe there in the temple. And he's a man of unclean lips. He, can't, he has to fall down, right? And he can't even speak. So what does the angel have to do? It brings a coal of what? A burning coal to his lips to purify him, right? So that he can, can speak. We will be purified because of what Jesus did. And then you have this mixed imagery, right? You have this fire imagery, and then he brings in this agricultural word picture of a calf, right? You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So how many of you have had calves on a stall before? Okay, one, two, three, a few of you, right? When you let a calf have a stall, are they happy? Yes, they go running out, right? So Spurgeon described it as this, to understand this figure. The calf in the stall is shut up. 
tied up with a halter at night. But when the sun rises, the calf goes forth to the pasture. The young bullock is set free. So the child of God may be in bondage. The recollection of past sins and present unbelief may halter him and keep him, from, keep him in the stall. But when the Lord reveals himself, he is set free. That's going to be us, right? Full of joy because we are set free from our bondage for what Christ has done. We are purified from our sins. We will not be condemned at the day of judgment. So, in these first three verses, we have some bad news and some happy news, depending on who you are, right? If you're an unbeliever, God's wrath is real. And you will be consumed by his fire of judgment. If you're a believer, you will be purified during judgment. You will not be consumed. And then we come to verses 4 and 5, which not only wrap up Malachi, actually wraps up the entire Old Testament as well. You have these two bookends. And I think you see the imagery here. You've got verse 4, you're talking about who? What character? Moses, right? And then verse 5, Elijah, right? Both these individuals, by the way, spoke to God where? On Mount Sinai, which is mentioned here. Um, who shows up on the Mount Transfiguration with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Who are likely the two witnesses in Revelation? Individuals that have the power of Moses and Elijah. So all the way through, you have this imaging, imagery throughout the Bible. But they represent something for us, right? Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. So they're representing the entire word of God, the Old Testament, right? So God is telling the people to do something here. And you see that in verse 4. That word remember is an imperative. It's a command. And it's more than just think about. Like, I, like I, what do I remember I need to get at the grocery store? It's beyond that. It's an action involved, right? It's remember and do something. And he says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him. God wants the people to obey his commandments. Children, you know this, right? What's the one command God has given you? To what? To obey who? Your parents, right? Children of God, what are we supposed to do? Obey God our Father, right? The command is the same. God is saying, obey. Verse 5, God is saying, I'm going to send Elijah or somebody in the spirit of Elijah before the awesome day of the Lord. He's talking about the second coming when Jesus comes as judge. He starts with behold, right? He's like trying to get your attention. Like, listen up, people. Judgment is coming. I am going to send somebody in the spirit of Elijah. And then he ends the entire Old Testament with a curse. What? We have a loving God, right? Yes, we do. But there's a conditional curse here at the end. He's basically in verse 6, he's saying, I would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their father. He's talking about repentance, right? Reconciliation. I want you to repent, lest, and here's the curse, if you don't, I will come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
He's done it before, right? I mean, we all play around with a little Noah's Ark and it's a happy thing, but it's really a picture of something really terrible, right? God destroyed the earth and everybody, everybody in it except for eight people. God's going to have utter destruction once again after judgment. And so in verses four and five, you see here, God is saying, first obey and then repent. What's the antidote for spiritual apathy? Repentance and obedience. We've been saying that all the way through Malachi, from chapter one to chapter four. All God wants them to do is repent and obey. Follow him, right? Get over yourself. Get over focusing on the world. Repent and obey me. That is the antidote for spiritual apathy. Incidentally, rabbit trail, the last verse in the New Testament is not a curse but a blessing. Okay? So we end on a great note, right? (laughs) Jesus has come back. He's taking us to heaven. And he ends with a blessing. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So what is happening here in this passage? We see that God is trying to get their attention. God is picking up his divine microphone, turning it on, and having these six dispute conversations with the people of Israel. And getting louder and louder, crescendoing up, just desperately trying to get their attention to focus on him. And then he, what does he do? He says, judgment is coming, repent, obey, and he stops. That awkward pause (laughs) was on purpose. 31 and a half seconds. If I multiply that by 400 million, that time frame would be 400 years when God is silent. He drops the mic, doesn't say a word to his people again for 400 years until Gabriel shows up to talk to Zechariah and John the Baptist speaks out in the wilderness. He's silent. He's done. He's told the people his final warnings. I am coming to judge Therefore, repent and obey. And then what does John the Baptist say? What does he want the people to do? Same message. I want you to repent and obey. Judgment is coming, right? I'm preparing the way of the Lord. Jonathan Edwards, some of you may remember that name. Um, probably uh, the individual we say has started the first great awakening in the United States. And most of you may be familiar with his famous uh, sermon, right? Sinners in the Hand of Angry God, that he did in 1741. Um, As he's trying to get the nation to focus on God and get over their spiritual apathy. And the Holy Spirit moves, and we have that first great awakening. We've had two great awakenings in the United States. Lord, may a third come tomorrow, tonight. I want to read part of the sermon. I'm not going to read the whole thing because the whole thing's 21 pages. (laughs) 
Here's what he preached to his congregation there. May the use of this sermon be of awakening to unconverted persons in the congregation. This that you have heard in the case of every one of you that are out of Christ, the world of misery that the lake of fire brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is a dreadful pit of glowing embers of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand upon, not anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep you off the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own, nothing that you ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom, haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you, escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. And there started the first great awakening as the Holy Spirit moved among the people who realized that they were going to encounter the wrath of God if they died that night. I have three applications tonight for this message that God has laid on my heart. Remember the big idea, right? That God's coming judgment motivates spiritual passion and gospel proclamation. The first application we've already said is really simple. The antidote for spiritual apathy, repentance and obedience. So heart change. Changing your heart posture. Refocusing back on God, spending time with him, reconciling your relationship with him. The second one, application is this. The motivation to reach every nation, tribe, and tongue is this. Judgment is coming. Who has God placed to share the gospel message? Us. Matthew 24, 14 says, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the ill end will come. I, you know, we hear many people saying, I wish Jesus would come back today. You can hasten his coming by sharing the gospel, right? You play a role in that. When every tribe and tongue and nation is reached for him, the end will be here. Why is God delaying? So that none will perish. We read it today in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. And my question for you, for me, is this. Do we have that heartbeat of 2 Peter 3, 9, not wishing that any should perish? Do we really have that urgency? There's 8 billion people on the earth. 59% of the world is unreached. That is 4.7 billion people who will encounter the wrath of God, be separated from him for eternity. Do we really have the urgency, even during this Christmas season, to share the story of Emmanuel with us? 
The lost are dying at 160,000 a day. During this worship service, 7,000 will die, eternally separated from God. God, loose our tongues, fill us with boldness to share the good news. Part of me wants to scream, forget the quorum. What am I doing standing here? What are you doing still sitting in your seats? Sitting in your seats? We should be running out the door, proclaiming the gospel to this city. If you're here tonight and you not accepted and pressed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do not leave here tonight without doing so. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. You see it on news every day. And if you died tonight without Jesus, your Lord and Savior, you will end up eternally separated with him. There's nothing I can do, nothing anybody can do, nothing you can do. The only one who can save you is Jesus. Judgment is coming, church. And God has called us to locally and globally share the gospel to the ends of the earth. How do we share it locally? Well, this church, I mean, we support, we're gonna, let's go through our checklist, right? We support Baptist student missionaries. We pray for them. We support them financially. We host them when they're here in town. We call them, pray for them. We have opportunities and events at Midtown and Beeson, like we did last night. By the way, within a one-mile radius, there's 1,400 lost souls in one-mile radius of our property. There's your motivation, church. We support our local and Baptist associations, and that's a good thing. But really what God has called us for, what has, has burdened the elders as we've talked about it, is personal evangelism. We are all called to share the gospel, not just a select few. We all have the great commission to go out and share the gospel. My hope is that some of these numbers resonate with you. It is, I have not slept well this night knowing that 160,000 people a day are dying around me. Do I care? Do I have the urgency to share the gospel? Do you? Not only locally, we're called to share it globally. Now let's go, what are we doing as a church? Well, we're supporting the Lloyd family in Thailand, the Gay Hart family in Indonesia, and the Burton family in an undisclosed area. All great things, right? We support them financially. Pray for them. Host them when they're here. Go and partner with them when we go on trips. Some of you in this room may be called to be a missionary overseas, just like the Millers were and my wife was, and like the Lloyds, the Gay Hearts, and Burtons. Don't ignore that call. Right? Don't quench the spirit. If God is calling you to do that, he will supply all your needs. He will take care of all the details. Just obey. We, during this season, we give the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, right? To help support our IMB missionaries. And that's a good thing. We bring our tithes and offerings in, and the church, we as a church, have taken part of our budget, and we support the IMB. And that's a good thing and the right thing to do. God wants us to do that. It's a way of us reaching the world. And I wanted to put flesh on that a little bit tonight. And so I've asked 
Jeff and Lori Harrington, friends of ours for the last 15 years, to come and uh, share a little bit about their IMB experience. Uh, their mission there is in Costa Rica. And um, so I'm going to ask them to share a little bit, and then I'll come back up and uh, talk about application number three. Greetings to you all. Is there any way to bring down the lights just a little bit so I can see everybody out there? Uh, we are, are Jeff and Lori and Harrington, and our children are sitting out there somewhere. Uh, Lily, Eliana, and Josiah. Uh, Josiah's a duck, it looked like. Um, we are, are so thankful. Charles is just sharing about your support of, of us and our colleagues around the world through Lottie Moon and through your giving uh, to support the International Mission Board. We uh, are serving with the, the IMB, and, and we want to share just a little bit with you about our journey and, and to say thank you for the way that you are holding the ropes here for us as you pray and as you give and uh, as you go, we, we want for, for you all to, to join us in, in what we are doing. Uh, we uh, have been married now for a little over 18 years. We have the three children, and uh, they were all born here in Texas. And, and then we've been in Latin America for the last nine years. And, and so we just want to share a little bit about how God called us out to, to go and um, and then a little bit of that journey with you and then what we're doing currently. So we're going to kind of go back and forth and share a little bit. So about 15 years ago, we went on our first um, international mission trip as a couple. And, and we didn't have any children then. We went to the state of Jalisco, Mexico. And um, in a region they were calling the the IMB was identified this area called the Heart of Darkness, Mexico. And it was a region in the center of Mexico that had less than 2% evangelical believers, um, which meaning that they had less than 2% understood what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And um, that was the first time that we had ever been in a place that had so little access to the gospel, where we could literally spend an entire week and not meet a soul who had a relationship with Jesus personally. And it really began to impact us. Um, we went the first year, and um, God really started working in Jeff. We went back the second year, and he really started working in me. And the missionary that was working in that region just challenged us uh, and said, we need people who would be willing to give at least two years of their life to come and serve alongside us and just to help us get out in these just thousands and thousands of villages and to train pastors and to plant churches and to help spread the gospel in this region. And we really began to consider that as a possibility. And as we came back, we prayed about it and we had just built a house. We had just started our American dream, but God was just saying, I'm worth it. I'm so much greater than all of this. And, um, Jeff really wanted to get more training, and so we moved to Fort Worth to go to um, Southwestern, Sim Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and that's where we met the Patricks. Um, Susanna was born. She was about a little over a year old, and Monica and I were both—she was pregnant with Josiah. I was pregnant with our first, and that's when we met each other, and I worked in the office with Charles there. And um, But during that time, 
God really began to confirm that call. And over those five years at seminary, I will admit that it was a huge struggle with the Lord for me to to really surrender to Him. As um, we, we arrived and we were thinking, oh, we'll just plow through seminary and head off to the mission field. And um, we found out two weeks after we arrived that I was pregnant with our daughter, Lily. And then things got real. <laughs> and um, we had Lily, two years later, Eliana, two years later, Josiah. And um, I really battled with the Lord on whether or not I could trust him to care for our family um, outside the country. And um, I, we, well, we just don't have time to go through all of that, but it was just a process of God confirming again and again and again that he was worth it. He was worth it and he was trustworthy. And that um, if he, he just confirmed in us that if he allows anything, that he holds everything in his hand. And so if he allowed anything to touch our family, wherever he sent us in the world, that it came through his filter and it had purpose and it was for our good and for his glory. And so once we came to that point of trusting in that, we were ready to go. And so, so nine years ago, we moved to Southern Mexico and began to learn uh, Spanish and we uh, had little children. They looked a lot different back then and they... Uh, they went, and this is something that, that has been a sacrifice for them. As mom and dad uh, wrestle through all of the, the call to go and all of that, they, they didn't really uh, have a whole lot of say in the, the decision to go. And so, uh, so missionary kids, they, they also pay a price in, in going. And so we, um, we're thankful to, to have them along with us on this journey. Uh, but we went there, we moved to, to Southern Mexico and lived in a little mountain town um, at about 7,000 feet, surrounded by indigenous groups and began to learn uh, Spanish and be mentored. Uh, Mexico was uh, highly Catholic, a lot of mixture between uh, the Catholicism and the indigenous beliefs of the people. And, and so we, we worked there and, and really saw God begin to open doors. We primarily worked in uh, oral uh, kind of ways as we were sharing the gospel there uh, because of the, the people uh, and just how they learned. And we spent that time there and then um, began to, uh, to learn Spanish and be mentored. And then we moved to, to the job that, that we were uh, assigned to, and uh, that was in, in Santiago, Chile. And so moving from a mountain town with indigenous people to a city of between six and seven million people was a big change. We, we lived up in a high-rise apartment on the 16th floor, and uh, the people there, it was, it was a lot more uh, European, a lot more postmodern in their thinking. It was very hard to build relationships. And so we had to change strategies in the way that we went about uh, just even gaining access to people. And while we were there, um, I served uh, our personnel in the Americas. My background was in accounting, and Lori didn't mention, but whenever we uh, when God began to work in our hearts, when we took those first trips, we lived here in, in Bryan, and I was working bivocationally 
as an accountant and, and a college minister at a small church here in town. And, and that's where God began that work. But he, he took us there, and so I was able to use some of the skills I have. And so even if you have other kinds of skills, God can use those in even giving you access to be in a place uh, that you can't be a missionary uh, but you can get into to places that other people can't get into because of your skill set and experience. And so that could be another opportunity. But I was able to do that. And then we worked in the part of the city there that uh, was the least reach was an area that was over 100,000 people with no evangelical church. And it was among the, the most upper class. And so that was a lot different than where we were working in Mexico. But we've learned that, that everybody has the same need, that, that we are all separated from God because of our sin. And so even if we have like all of these possessions and things, like we still have the need that the, that the people who don't have much have. We're, we have sin, and that's our greatest uh, problem, and so that separates us from God, and so we've seen that to be true, and um, we took on a new role a little over five years ago in Costa Rica, and uh, share a little bit more about that in just a little bit, but, um, but these two places that we worked in prepared us for that. So in, in June of 2017, we moved to San Jose, Costa Rica, which is the capital of Costa Rica, and... Um, there, our role is focusing with working alongside Costa Rican Baptist churches who are needing help with, um, with church growth, with discipleship evangelism, with training leadership development, and helping them to plant new churches, helping the Costa Rican church to rise up and reach their country, and then also sending out Costa Ricans to go to the nations as missionaries. And then the other half of our work is training Southern Baptist churches, such as yourself, who want to get started in missions, and they want training. And... Um, and so we work a lot with Southern Baptist churches, training them for cross-cultural work. And, um, and in that, whenever we first arrived, we, we knew no one. And um, we are the only uh, IMB missionaries in Costa Rica. So the task was very overwhelming in the beginning. And so we just really sought the Lord, asked him for his direction, that he would guide and lead our family to the right connections, the right people, so that he would guide us in what he desired for us to be focused on. And he has been so faithful to do that. And um, just like Charles was talking about, one area that we've really focused on is evangelism, training the churches there to be out in their communities, training them to be equipped to share the gospel, um, training them to train others to do this, and getting them out into their communities, sharing with people about Jesus Christ. And um, we now are working with several uh, churches in that area, helping them get out of their walls, um, helping to see there's two new church plants getting started um, while we've been here. And we're raising up Costa Ricans to lead in all of those areas. Um, while we've been here in the United States for the last few months, one of those groups has chosen to now, they have three Bible studies meeting weekly um, and different people's homes. And they have now come together just last month and identified themselves as a church. So now they are seeing themselves as the Baptist Church of Palmichal. And um, so we're just so excited about seeing what God is doing in Costa Rica and um, do you want me to mention this? Sorry. And our areas of focus with our Costa Rican churches are in um, 
are in evangelism, discipleship, leadership development, and church health. And one of the big areas that we've worked on as well, especially during the pandemic, is developing Bible study resources and leadership development materials, um, because that was a huge need, and making things that are available locally so they don't have to order things from outside of the country that are outside of their means and very difficult to get. And, um, and just take a long time for them to arrive. So we've been working alongside Costa Ricans to develop Costa Rican materials that are affordable, reproducible, and can be over, openly shared with other churches as well. I don't know what the next slide is. It may be about Pastor Sergio. Yeah. So I think for time, I'm not going to share the full story of this, but but this is one of those stories where Pastor Sergio and I met early on in our time in Costa Rica, and he was in one of those churches that was struggling uh, to, to really get out. Uh, he was a newer pastor and wanted to, to get out into their community and identify uh, places that, that needed to, to hear the gospel around them. Charles mentioned how many people around you... Um, there are that that need to to hear the gospel and and so uh, over time, Pastor Sergio and I uh, we've worked with a couple of teams with their local church and then uh, during the pandemic, he and I met uh, via Zoom every couple of weeks just to encourage one another and pray together and uh, continued to think about how they could get out and so we worked with them at the end of last year with one of our teams and he'd identified several areas that they wanted to to begin to focus in on as as we were kind of coming out of the pandemic in Costa Rica and and so we went out with uh, so he had gathered up a group of their people and we said, we're going to go out into these places. And we did some spiritual interest surveys and were able to share the gospel. And it was something that the people of the church really owned and they got excited about. And they began to, to follow up and to go back into these areas. And, and so this, this, uh, this summer after we had gotten back to, to the States, uh, I was talking to Sergio just to see how they were doing and what was going on. And, and he told me that they now had six different areas that their church was working in. And they were going out multiple days during the week uh, to share the gospel, to follow up with people. They're training people in their church. And they are, are really taking uh, just this next step and getting people um, out and involved and taking others along with them and then discipling those who are believing. So it's really encouraging to see all that's happening with that. Is the video good to show? I'm going to, I'm going to show you just a real quick video so you can see a little bit about what we are doing. Hello, we are Jeff and Lori Harrington, your IMB missionaries serving as part of the America's Connect team here in Costa Rica. We serve with an IMB ministry called America's Connect. America's Connect trains and equips Southern Baptist churches as a first step toward deeper missions engagement. Through their training and on-the-ground ministry, churches are better prepared to take the gospel to those who have never heard. After receiving training, we then help to connect those churches with unreached places throughout Latin America where they can go on to partner long-term. Through America's Connect, we also work alongside national churches in the areas of evangelism, discipleship, leadership development, and church health. It is our desire to see both U.S. and Costa Rican churches equipped to go and take the gospel where it has never been heard. Currently today, there are over 7,070 unreached people groups around the world, representing 4.5 billion people with little to no access to the gospel. 
Through America's Connect, we desire to provide a first step to help equip and connect U.S. and national churches to engage people in those unreached places. We are so thankful for the Lord's faithfulness and for your partnership with us through prayer and giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering so that we can continue to serve the Lord in these ways. So I don't want to describe more than that. We'll just leave it at that. But what Charles is talking about tonight, about the, the, the wrath of God and the reality of an eternity separated from God is, is something that, that drives us as we, we go and we share the gospel with others, wherever we are, uh, right here in, in Bryan College Station and into the ends of the earth. And there's something else that, that drives us as well, because uh, we know that, that there is a coming reality. And in, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a reality that is coming as well. And we know that for everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus, that we will be among that number and we will be there before the Lamb with people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. But in order for them to, to be there with us, we must proclaim the gospel and we must go. And so that is what we're doing with both uh, Southern Baptist churches who are coming and, and with our Costa Rican brothers and sisters. We want to equip people to take the gospel to those who need to hear. And so we want to encourage you all as well as you do that. And we'd love for you to, to join us in what we're doing. We'll stop there. So remember that um, our first application was the solution to spiritual apathy was to repent and obey. The second is our motivation for sharing the gospel is the judgment is coming. Whether that we need to share the gospel here in Bryan's College Station, Lexington, Virginia, Costa Rica, to the ends of the earth. And as that great theologian Eli F.G. said, there's no time to waste, Right? <laughs> And there really isn't, right? The final application is going to be interactive, and it's going to be our Lord's Supper. Um, the Lord's Supper has many aspects to it uh, that points to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And it has a past, a present, and a future tense to it. The past is to commemorate what uh, Christ did for us on the first advent. He came as Savior, right? And we celebrate that in Christmas, his incarnation. In Easter, we celebrate his death and resurrection as he saved us. For the present tense, we come together as a church, we participate in unity. And we also participate in examining ourselves. And more about that in a moment. And then the future tense is anticipate 
we focus on what Christ will do on his second advent. Y'all, he's coming back to get us, right? You, those of you who are in Christ, he's coming to take us home. And that is something to celebrate and to remember. So commemorate, participate, and anticipate. Tonight, as we do the Lord's Supper, it is a moment for us to examine ourselves. And I think it would be remiss after going through the Malachi as we have that we need to examine if we're spiritually apathetic. Examine ourselves individually, our family units, church. And so I'm going to have the, the worship team come up. But the first part of the Lord's Supper, I want us to do completely in silence. I want to give us all a chance to meditate and pray to God. And then when uh, Chad senses from the Holy Spirit it's time to begin, I want to ask him to play, and that'll be your cue to start wrapping up your prayer and to come get the elements so we can participate together. God's word is clear that we are to examine ourselves during the Lord's Supper, right? We worship a holy God. So examine whether you're spiritually apathetic. If you need to reconcile with somebody in the church, go to them, right? But take these quiet few moments to meditate, to pray where you're at. And again, when Chad senses his time, he'll start to play and you'll know when to begin to wrap up your prayer and come get your elements and then we'll continue together. His word picture of the Lord's Supper in Luke 22. It's the evening before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's arrested. And he's having his last supper with his disciples up in the upper room. Go ahead and open and get your wafer. So this is meant to symbolize something Jesus said. It's to symbolize his body. Now, Jesus, God with us, came Christmas, right? For a purpose, to be a sacrifice for us, a blameless, sinless sacrifice for me, for everybody in this room, because we are all sinners. He died a criminal's death for me, for you. And may we never forget that Jesus took the bread and separated it and gave each piece to his disciples and said, Do this in remembrance of me and the sacrifice I did for you. Go ahead and open the next portion. Likewise, likewise, that night, and Jesus had a cup of wine We're going to use juice. (laughs) Again, it's a word picture, right? And Jesus said it was something very specific. It represented his blood. Not the blood for the sacrifice, but the blood that sealed our new covenant with him. And you remember as we walked through Leviticus and other parts of the Old Testament, blood is always spilled to seal us a covenant. And Jesus said, I want you to do this to remember the new covenant I have with you. That you are mine. I've adopted you in my family and I'm coming back to get you. So he 
shared the cup around with the disciples and said, sip this in remembrance of me. May we never grow tired or used used to this word picture, right? Remember what Christ did for us. The last thing they did when they left the upper room is going to the garden. They left together singing a song. (laughs) So let us sing in celebration, right, of what Jesus did for us. And the fact he's coming back. We And if you're a believer, you have no fear of the wrath of God. Amen? Amen.